You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Jennings, Drunken Deck, Two-Gun Tony, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'm pleased to introduce our newest Commodore, Redbeard, the Smoky Mountain Pirate. And of course, our quartermasters, Samuel and Adam. Mabuhai! Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. That's a Filipino greeting, Mabuhai, thanks to one of our Philippine listeners, Denise, because we're back in the Philippines today. We're back with the crew of the Signet. And just in case you happen to be new to the show or would like a quick refresher, here goes as fast as possible. Signet was a merchantman out of London, owned by a trading firm. Charles Swan was a fat, jovial captain tasked with taking Signet to Peru, where he would trade with the Spanish there. Signet, though, got caught up with a bunch of English pirates who were menacing Peru and Panama on what they called the Second Pacific Adventure. Swan was forced to scuttle his plans for trade, as the Spanish there would have killed any Englishmen they found after two or three pirate raids. So Swan agreed to engage in a little light piracy. But after a few months, he decided to split with his pirate comrades. Those pirates were crossing back to the Caribbean, and Swan chose instead to sail across the Pacific to the East Indies. The crew agreed, although some did choose to go with the pirates, but that's when William Dampier joined the crew of Signet. Dampier was a naturalist and a navigator who wrote and published his experiences on this voyage, and he's who we have to thank for most of this story. After a dreadful Pacific crossing, they arrived at the Marianas Islands, and then moved on to Guam, and finally landed at the southernmost Philippine island of Mindanao. They made landfall, eventually, at the Sultanate, of Maguindanao. The Sultan there produced a letter from the English East India Company to the Sultan that outlined a plan to build a factory there on Mindanao. They hoped that Swan was a representative of the company, but he wasn't. Swan was honest about that and broke the news to the Sultan. Still, though, the Sultan's brother, a man named Raja Laut, who was the admiral of the Sultanate, was trying to talk Captain Swan and the crew of Signet into staying there at Maguindanao. The crew numbered around 100 men, 
and we could break them into three factions. First, the captain's faction. That included, obviously, Captain Swan, as well as his first mate, Mr. Nelly, the factor, Mr. Harthop, and the merchant, Mr. Smith, along with around thirty others. One might include the captain of their bark, their smaller companion ship, named Captain Josiah Teat, with the captain's faction, for now. And then there was what one might call the sensible faction. That included William Dampier, and the quartermaster of Signet, Mr. Henry Moore, as well as probably a Mr. Carl Rofey, who would, later on, go on to become a captain in the Royal Navy. And then I would add the surgeon's mate, Herman Coppinger, and perhaps the surgeon himself. But then third, there was the pirate faction. Old sea dogs who plundered the coasts of Peru and Panama back in the Pacific Adventure, but they had agreed to the plan of selling the wares on board Signet to buy spices there in the East Indies. They agreed to that plan months ago, but more and more they seemed to be pushing to ride out and to scour the sea near the Spanish capital of the Philippines at Manila. The pirate faction was led by John Reed, the ship's pilot. He was a gruff, experienced seaman. I have suggested that it's possible, however very unlikely, that John Reed was the disappeared and presumed dead father of Mary Reed. The pirate faction was small at first. Most of them belonged to the sensible faction, but they were growing. It looked very much like Captain Swan was seriously considering Raja Laut's plan to settle down there at Mindanao, and for a crew that was used to a life of roving, that was less than ideal. They were, at the moment, speaking quietly, in hushed whispers, in secluded corners. This is episode 131, A Seaman Bread. Over the last few weeks, we have discussed the establishment and the early years of the Dutch and English East India Companies, the VOC and EIC respectively, and here in the fall of 1686, the Sultanate of Maguindanao, and therefore the crew of the Signet, were surrounded by company power. To the south, the Dutch controlled the Spice Islands and much of Indonesia, they had bases on Sumatra and Java, and a powerful naval base at Jakarta. They also had a presence to the north, at Taiwan and even in Japan. To the west there was Borneo and mainland Southeast Asia. Now, that was mostly independent from company power, but the English were sniffing around, and then further to the west there was India, which had a substantial English presence. But a more immediate threat than the English, or even the Dutch, was the Spanish Empire. Their westernmost expanse of Nuevo España was the Philippines. However, all three powers, the Dutch, English, and Spanish, would view Signet and her crew as a threat. The Dutch and Spanish would view her as interlopers in their vital colonial trade system, and both were notorious for dealing with interlopers, that is, anyone who chose to trade without license, harshly. And the English would see the crew for what they were, pirates. 
Maybe Captain Swan's credentials would carry water, and maybe he could spin a yarn of being commandeered by pirates and forced to flee and cross the Pacific. Or maybe not. He didn't know, and it was best at this point not to test that. The best bet for the signet was to stay in waters and ports that were held by independent nations. Maguindanao, Vietnam, the Malacca Sultanate in Malaysia, and Thailand. All of them were relatively safe ports from which they could undertake the plan. Swan's old plan to buy nutmeg and cinnamon, to buy it out from under the Dutch noses, to do so with the proceeds from their attack on the Panamanian gold mine at Santa Maria. With that sort of cargo, a haul that valuable, they just might be able to avoid the gallows and enrich everyone on the crew. And that was still the plan, right? Ostensibly, yes, no new plan had been brought before the crew, but Captain Charles Swan did seem to be seriously entertaining the proposals of Raja Laut. That would include setting up a factory at the capital of Maguindanao, which would encroach on both Spanish and Dutch interests. But it wasn't just Raja Laut that wanted to make this a reality. The people of Mindanao appear to have wanted it as well. Dampier tells us in his book, A New Voyage Round the World, quote, They are most afraid of the Dutch, being sensible how they have enslaved many of the neighboring islands. For that reason, they have a long time desired the English to settle among them and have offered a convenient place to build a fort in. They do not find the English so encroaching as the Dutch or Spanish. End quote. And, well, think about it. If they got this English merchant, with his crew of around 100 men, to build and man a fort, to supply it with their 26 big guns, to teach the shipwrights to build European-style sloops, the people of Maguindanao might just have a chance of defending their kingdom against either the Dutch or the Spanish. And it's entirely likely that Raja Laut had their number here. He might know just what these bearded, raggedy swashbucklers were all about. They were pirates. And Raja Laut knew pirates. There were a ton of Malay pirates operating in a nearby island chain. But they were less experienced with capturing European-style vessels. They did so, but only smaller craft. These English pirates had that experience, though. They could lead crews of Moro sailors to capture ships, to train the crew, and eventually to build a navy. All of this reminds me very much of Barbarossa, of Redbeard in the Mediterranean, an Ottoman Greek privateer who had the experience to lead fleets, to build shipyards and gunpowder factories and cannon foundries, all of which would construct a navy. Raja Laut wanted this very badly. He was courting Captain Swan as assiduously as any amorous youth would court a lover. And he was treating Swan and his inner circle of Harthop, Smith, and Nellie to the good life. They were staying in Raja Laut's home. They dined together every evening, and they shared bois and tea and tobacco. But what else were they sharing? 
The crew was certainly asking that question. Women, certainly, and Raja Laut was well known to have the prettiest servants and harem girls and daughters. How far would Raja Laut go, the crew wondered. But the women weren't the biggest source of gossip among the crew. More than anything else, they talked about the money. See, Swan and Harthop and Smith had a chest full of gold for the ship's seed money. The crew had agreed to take smaller shares to pitch in to this seed money and then to sail across the Pacific in the understanding that they would take all of that money and buy spices with it. It was to be an investment in their future, an investment in the plan. Now you may remember that Captain Swan had agreed to shelter the signet in a river there in Mindanao. Monsoon season was upon them, and that seemed to be the safest place for their ship. And you may also remember that Raj Alaut personally stood on deck to pilot signet in himself. He knew the river, after all, so that makes sense as well. But then Captain Swan took that chest of money off of the ship. And again, yeah, that makes sense, but it was a little suspicious. That money belonged to the crew. It was to be in the care of Captain Swan and the factor, Mr. Harthop, but right now it was holed up in Raja Laut's estate. The crew were not allowed into the palace where they might get a look at it. At least, well, most of them weren't allowed in. For example, a seaman like John Reed was a bit too uncouth for Raja Laut's company. However, some of the crew did occasionally get to visit Raja Laut's estate. It was the better sort among the crew. Mr. Fitzgerald, the surgeon, his mate Herman Coppinger, Carl Rofey probably, and, you know, one or two others who had a fine suit for dining were sometimes called in to entertain Raja Laut with English song and dance. And, of course, William Dampier. He tells us of the meals that were shared there in the palace. He enjoyed the rice and the fish just fine, but really nothing else that was served there. The buffalo they ate was, quote, prepared nastily, and the fowl they had was, quote, ill-dressed, and he was not terribly fond of the durian fruit. But nonetheless, William Dampier and the other guests sat there and ate these meals with a smile on their faces. Raja Laut was, after all, their host on the island, and Charles Swan was the captain. But more than that, I think, whenever they dined at the palace of Raja Laut, they could get a peek at the treasure, and more than that, to try and decipher what Swan might be planning. After dinner, they would share stories and tea and tobacco and boy, but soon enough they would be off to enjoy their evenings however they saw fit. And their evenings there at Maguindanao were pleasant. The crew were ingratiating themselves with the people of Mindanao. They were making friends among the locals and taking lovers, and some were even beginning to set down roots. There was a bit of a language barrier, but many of the women and a few of the men spoke at least a little Spanish, as did many of the crew, so Spanish served as a sort of lingua franca on the island. And most of the men had somewhere to stay there in the capital. They had a host family of sorts. 
This relationship with the host family was typically initiated by the women of the household, who made themselves available as guides and translators and platonic friends. These women were called Pagalis, or Pagali, and it's a custom which amused and occasionally irritated the crew. These relationships were platonic. They were fully condoned by the husbands of the Pagali, and the husbands often called themselves camarada, Spanish for comrade. Dampier writes of this custom, quote, The citizens of Mindanao came frequently aboard to invite our men to their houses and to offer us Pagalis. It was a long time since any of us had received such friendship, and therefore we were drawn to accept their kindness. In a short time, most of our men got a comrade or two, and as many Pagalis, especially such of us as had good clothes and store of gold, as many had who were of the number of those that accompanied Captain Harris over the Isthmus of Darien, the rest of us being poor enough. Nay, the very poorest and meanest of us could hardly pass the streets, but we were even hauled by force into their houses to be treated by them. Although their treats were but mean, namely tobacco, or betel nut, or a little sweet spiced water, yet their seeming sincerity, simplicity, and the manner of bestowing these gifts made them very acceptable. They would always be praising the English as declaring that the English and Mindanaeans were all one. This they expressed by putting their two forefingers together close and saying, Samo, Samo, that is, all one. End quote. It sounds like a lovely custom, but Dampier goes on to tell us that after telling the English that they were all one, the speaker would move those two forefingers apart, about two feet, and they would say, Dutch. And then they would move their fingers as far apart as their arms would stretch and say, Spanish. Indicating, of course, that the people of Mindanao and the English were very much alike in values and sympathies, while the people of the Dutch and Spanish nations were not. And you know, that could just be a clever bit of propaganda, but in this case, I don't think it is. The people of the Philippines had very good reason to hate the Spanish and to fear the Dutch. And remember the Hearts and Minds campaign undertaken by the English in Southeast Asia at the dawn of the English East India Company? Well, it appears to have worked. However, the Pagalis were somewhat more nefarious than they appeared at first glance. The men of Signet were expected to give gifts to their Pagali, usually baubles or jewelry. The Pagali would gather together to display their gifts in public and admire all of their finery. But these were, of course, merely simple gifts of friendship, absolutely nothing more. But the husband would accept no payment for the food and the shelter he provided, as long as his wife was happy. It's a pleasant fiction, but transactionary at its core. For now, though, through September and October, part of November, everything was mostly happy and peaceful. The men enjoyed the kindness of their hosts, and they spent their evenings in quiet comfort. That was, of course, soon shattered, when the truly nefarious nature of the Pagali became apparent. Dampier, I think, 
noted it first. He was teaching classes, teaching some of the women to speak English, which was a useful skill should the English establish a base here. It was almost exclusively women who spoke other languages, aside from the Arab ruling class, since it was women that oversaw most of the merchant affairs. They had to speak Spanish and Chinese. So the matriarch of the households were usually who was attending Dampier's classes. But then Dampier started noticing that the classes were growing. Pupils of his started bringing their widowed sisters or marriageable daughters. Innocent as can be, but they would introduce them to Dampier, and he was flustered. And I think that Dampier got it first and got some of the worst of that because his classes were one of the few opportunities that the women of Mindanao had to mingle freely outside of their Pagali relationship. Generally, the men of Signet were closely watched in all of their interactions with the women. Raja Laut, for example, claimed that he trusted the crew implicitly and would even show great faith in them by leaving them in private with his wife. However, they were never really in private. There were always one or two large, dangerous-looking men standing around to guard her from harm. Not from the pirates, of course, just a general sort of harm. And Dampier tells us that, outside of the Pagali and his classes, he saw women cooped up inside as though they were held prisoner, and he saw at least one woman struck for smiling too forwardly at one of the English. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The women who appeared to be 
forbidden, were the topic of much discussion among the crew of Signet. Dampier writes that at one ceremony, when the men of Signet caught a rare glimpse of the royal family, quote, two of the sultan's nieces were about eighteen or nineteen years old, the other were three or four years younger. These young ladies were richly dressed with loose garments of silk and small coronets. They were much fairer than any women I did see there, very well featured, and very well proportioned. End quote. And Dampier speaks of the discussions that the men had of an almost mythical sultan's daughter, a girl only of fourteen who the crew had heard tell of but was never once allowed to see. Not even Charles Swan or any of his inner circle got to see her. It appears that the sultan's daughter was being kept safe for a marriage alliance in the future, and neither the sultan nor Raja Laut was willing to risk her honor. But the crew did have some consolations in all this. Dampier mentions it only coyly, as he rarely discusses sex in his writings, but there were less platonic relationships forming. A few men, and exactly who these few men were is important, but a few chose to buy a small house there and take a... a wife, maybe? Maybe a concubine would be a better word. This was a strictly Muslim society, and these concubines never married their English counterparts, but oftentimes they wouldn't come from the Moro people down in Maguindanao, but from one of the peoples up in the mountains who were not necessarily Muslim. And even those who didn't choose to buy a house often found someone with whom they could dally and while away the evenings. But even those who didn't find a woman with which to pass the time, and there were several, including William Dampier and Herman Coppinger, the surgeon's mate, once Ramadan was complete, the men of Signet had a great time on Mindanao. They saw traditional dances put on by women and men. They saw the contests of strength and courage and will that were put on by the men of Mindanao. Some of the crew were even so bold as to take part in these contests and laughed at their shortcomings there. Dampier tells us of another custom that was strange and alien to the civilized and highly cultured Europeans. He writes, quote, You shall always see abundance of people of both sexes in the river from morning till night, washing their bodies or clothes. They strip and stand naked till they have done, then put them on and march out again. Both men and women take great delight in swimming and washing themselves, being bred to it from infancy. I do believe it is very wholesome to wash mornings and evenings in these hot countries at least three or four days in the week. End quote. This was a shocking custom for the Englishman, but it was one that Dampier admired and would take up for the rest of his life. Dampier was also present at a mass circumcision in which the Sultan's son and many of the boys of Maguindanao had to prove their manliness in a test of strength before undergoing the procedure. He was impressed at their spirit, but he did note that the young men would walk bow-legged for several days after. All in all, we can imagine a happy, relaxed, pleasant few weeks there at Maguindanao. They had friendly hosts and new friends and lovers. They enjoyed good manila tobacco and the buai nut and even hashish, a transplant from Vietnam. 
Aside from some of the odd foods and the snakes and centipedes, the men of Signet were at rest. But the weeks dragged into months, and we begin to see the cracks in that peaceful facade. First came those tensions between the crewmen that had money and those that did not. The members of the crew who had money from their raid on Santa Maria were able to procure fine gifts of silver and jewels, while those who had no money had only the cargo on board, silks and dyes and porcelain china, gifts that would have astounded any woman in Europe, but here in the Philippines were commonplace. I mean, imagine having a fierce Filipina woman who is your guide and your host furious at you. You know, you're not her husband, but you feel the full weight of a man made to sleep on the couch, all because you could only afford to give her silk. This forced some of the crew to go back to sleeping on the ship when they could not afford the Pegali relationship, while still others were barely scraping by, finding gifts for their Pegalis. Of an evening, those men could be seen out by the river, near Signet, huddled around a campfire, eating scant meals, they weren't starving by any means, but not the fare that they would have had in a nice Filipino home. When it rained, the men were forced to take shelter on board, and they began to wonder just what they were doing here. You know, if they had been out on the ocean earning money either by trading for spices or by capturing Spanish prizes, they would be earning a living. But here they were just surviving. And more and more... John Reed could be seen around those same fires, and all of these dispossessed eyes were locked on him, listening intently to whatever it was he happened to be saying. That pirate contingent I mentioned, this was the nucleus of that group. Aside from John Reed, no one was yet of note here, but that number was going to grow to include officers and even captain's men. I mentioned that we needed to pay attention to exactly who was buying houses and settling down, and those were almost entirely captain's men. They seemed to be settling into very comfortable lives with their new homes and the women they brought in, several of whom seemed to be suspiciously round in key places. And that's all well and good, that's their business, but that state of affairs was unacceptable for men that still needed to work for a living. And then we come to the tale of a man named John Thacker. Thacker was a captain's man, living comfortable enough, and Raja Laut would often request his presence at one of his dinners. John Thacker was an excellent dancer, and the Raja enjoyed his dancing. Dampier writes of him, quote, among the men that danced before the general, there was one John Thacker, who was a seaman bred. He could neither write nor read, but had formerly learnt to dance in the music houses about Wapping. He came into the South Seas with Captain Harris, and, getting a good quantity of gold and being a good husband of his share, had still some left besides what he laid out in a very good suit of clothes. The general, Raja Laut, supposed by his garb and his dancing that Thacker had been of noble extraction, and to be satisfied of his quality, asked one of our men if he did not guess a right of him. 
The man of whom the general asked this question told him he was much in the right, and that most of our ship's company were of the like extraction, especially those all that had fine clothes. But for the rest, those that had but mean clothes, they were only common seamen. After this, the general showed a great deal of respect to John Thacker, till Captain Swan came to know the business. Undeceiving the general and drubbing the nobleman, he was much incensed against John Thacker, that he could never endure him afterwards, though the poor fellow knew nothing of the matter. End quote. What they're saying here is that one man, John Thacker, due to his clothes and his skill at dancing, impressed Raja Laut as a nobleman. Another crewman, entirely unrelated here, upon being asked if he were in fact a nobleman, said, Oh yeah, definitely a nobleman. Most of us are, in fact. You can uh, always tell by the clothes. And then, Captain Charles Swan, who was always impressed at Raja Laut's many shows of strength through discipline of his men, publicly beat John Thacker in full view of the whole crew. This was not acceptable behavior on board a buccaneer ship. And in the weeks to come, and we're about to enter December 1686, John Thacker found himself at many of the campfires around which men were talking about the captain, talking about their money, and trying to figure out exactly what might be going on here. The fireside chats grew less and less congenial and more and more conspiratorial. Thacker was only the first man to suffer the discipline of Captain Swan, but more and more members of the crew were subjected to this sort of violence, and they began to join these fires as well. But then the men who were sticking close to Signet noticed something about the ship. The hull was pockmarked and scarred. It was actually the captain of their bark, Captain Josiah Teat, that noticed that damage first, and brought it up to Captain Swan. Swan told Josiah Teat not to worry about it, and Josiah Teat promptly ignored him. Teat and John Reed and John Thacker, all three seamen bred, rallied the crew to see to their vessel. See, John Reed was respected by the men, but he had no official authority, not much at least. However, Captain Teat did. In a way, he was second in command in the fleet. With Teat on board, and now that they had noticed the damage, they had a fully legitimate reason to gather the entire crew together. Those scars and pockmarks on the hull were the work of worms. If left unchecked, they could breach the hull of Signet. Nearly the entire crew, not including Swan and his cadre, went to the river and beached the signet to careen her. They did so without the permission of Captain Swan or Mr. Harthup or anyone, really, but the damage was significant. However, not all was lost here. See, signet had two hulls, an inner and an outer hull. This was typical of seafaring vessels after the European design, but it was not typical of the Filipino proa and that's relevant. Remember here that Raja Laut himself piloted Signet to this very location, 
where apparently they had a worm problem. That's the sort of thing that one would expect the admiral of a seafaring people to maybe have some information about. The crew was in the middle of peeling off that outer hull when trumpets blared, and suddenly a procession arrived on the scene. Captain Swan arrived with Mr. Smith and Harthop and Nellie and Raja Laut. Raja Laut's reaction here in front of the whole crew was shocking. Now let Dampier tell it. He writes, quote, We did not mistrust the general's knavery till now, for when he came down to our ship and found us ripping off the sheathing plank and saw the firm bottom underneath, he shook his head and seemed to be discontented, saying he did never see a ship with two bottoms before. We were told that in this place where we now lay, a Dutch ship was eaten up in two months' time, and the general had all her guns. It is probable he did expect to have ours, which I do believe was the main reason that made him so forward in assisting us to get our ship into the river, for when we came out again, we had no assistance. End quote. He then goes on to mention the many times that they careened and scrubbed their vessel at the Marianas and Guam and even on Mindanao before making landfall at Maguindanao, and he says that they never had any trouble with worms before. And then he points out that he had noticed the people of Maguindanao would pull their proa from the river and if they found any sight of worms would burn her and dry her until she was ready to go to sea again. After his little temper tantrum, Raja Laut stormed off, but Swan stayed behind. He did so to accost Josiah Teat for going behind his back to careen the ship, but the crew turned on the captain. They asked him, Do you see the hull sitting there? We had to careen the ship or we would be stranded here forever. Did you see the general's reaction, he was clearly upset and his plans were clearly dashed. Swan backed down. He swore to the crew that he would deal with this situation and confront Raja Laut about this information. But Swan was a coward. He would never do so. Instead, once the ship was repaired and back in the harbor at anchor, Swan decided to reassert his authority among the crew. Swan had beaten John Thacker and several other members of the crew, but once the signet was back in the water at anchor, Captain Swan had Josiah Teat dragged out into the center of town. There, before Raja Laut and several of the other members of the royal family, and a growing number of people from the town, and the entire crew of Signet, Swan had him strapped down and beaten with a whip. Dampier says that, at that time, Captain Swan had his men as much under command as if he had been in a king's ship. The men were furious, but they didn't react immediately. They watched this effrontery in silence and then walked away without a single word to their captain. This wasn't the last straw. There were two or three more straws that had to break, and we're going to discuss those next time. But at this point, 
I think that the tide had turned against Captain Charles Swan irrevocably. Now that John Thacker and John Reed and Josiah Teat had the ship seaworthy, and now that the crew had seen just the depths to which their captain would sink, beating his second-in-command in front of the entire city, they began to prepare for departure, under the nose of Captain Swan, or maybe just not caring if he saw. And these three men, among others, began to secure their position on the signet, which they would soon be running. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a review or a rating wherever it is you listen to the show, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight